You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Well, it is Christmas Eve. We've spent the last three weeks looking at the announcement of the birth of Jesus, uh, Luke chapter 1. I'd invite you, if you have your Bible this morning, or it's evening, that's a hard habit to break, isn't it? Um, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible on you, uh, there should be one in the pew there near you. And uh, if you don't have a Bible at home or one that you can read easily, please, our Christmas gift to you, take it. We would love for you to have it. Uh, we'll replace them all in the new year. That's fantastic. So if you need a Bible, um, that is our gift to you. Um, Luke chapter 1 is where we're going to spend uh, our time this evening. We've, we've dug through these verses in detail and in depth. And, and so this evening, I want to just take a few minutes and just kind of draw it all together. Uh, we've been zoomed in on the details of this puzzle, and, and I want us to step back and just see the, the bigger picture, the grand scheme. Uh, it struck me last week, we had the, the kids come together and put on uh, their Christmas production, and what a fantastic job they did, what a great time it was, and, and such a beautiful, sentimental part of our Christmas experience, this, this simple story of the birth of Jesus played out by children in their cute little angel costumes and shepherd costumes, memorizing and delivering their lines on cue. Uh, it's just one of the things that we've come to enjoy and love at Christmas. And yet, if you were to step back and, and take a bit of a critical look, if, if Christianity had a marketing department, say, if this is is this how we want to present ourselves to the world? If we want the world to take us seriously, if we actually believe this is true, um, would, would, would this be the way we would do it? Is this how we would present this story? Wouldn't it be better to have some maybe documentary series or, or some scholars making uh, you know, news briefs and announcements? And yet as we go back over the original Christmas story, we look at what actually happened the way the Lord worked, the way he planned and carried out the entrance of Christ into this world really is not that far from something more akin to the, the kids' Christmas program. And so um, it wasn't done in a way that was strong and, and powerful and, and impressive. It wasn't done in a way that was respectable, even believable by the world watching. It was done in a way that was intentionally, deliberately, shockingly humble. Looking at the very beginning of this Christmas story, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary, this announcement of the coming birth. And, and we see this so clearly in these first few verses, Luke chapter 1, um, verses 26 to 31. We see he came from humble beginnings. Let me read these first verses, Luke 1, starting at verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth 
to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. If you wanted to impress people, if you wanted to make a a statement of, of power, there's a few things you would have done differently through here. First, you would not have sent the angel to this unimportant, unknown, backwoods town of Nazareth. Further, you most certainly would not have sent the angel to a young, unmarried woman. Certainly not in that day. To the best of our knowledge, Mary at the time of this announcement would have been kind of between 13 and 15 years old. That's in a day uh, when, when women, were ne- never mind being able to vote, they weren't even counted as a credible witness in a court of law. Even today, what kind of reception would a, a 14-year-old girl get if she walked into our church? I saw an angel. He spoke to me. Okay. No, no, and I'm, and I'm pregnant, but I'm still a virgin. Oh, sure. Yeah, that's how that works. We believe you. No. No, nobody's jumping on this bandwagon. This is not a power move. She would be shushed and, and turned away. She'd have no credibility in that. Jesus came to a, an intentionally humbled situation. He came as humble. He didn't come to impress the impressive. He didn't come to be seen as important in the eyes of the important or powerful in the eyes of the powerful. He came as humble because he came for the humble. He came to this this blue-collar family. Joseph was a carpenter, small town. Suspected of infidelity, there's a mark against him. He's born in a stable meant for animals, surely a a mark of dishonor. He's worshipped by shepherds. They were were considered the the lowlifes, the the bottom of the working class, the rig pigs. I can say that, I've I've been one. Um, That's who they're looking at, these these grubby, dirty, blue-collar guys. He's making a point. He's coming intentionally to the lowly, the dirty, the weak, the outcast, and and not just in a physical sense, but morally, spiritually. He came for sinners. If you're familiar with the the Reformation, Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the Wittenberg church door uh, in Germany, well, Just a couple years later, basically unfolding on a similar timeline over in London, uh, was a Catholic priest named Thomas Bilney. He had gotten his hands on one of those notoriously dangerous, strictly forbidden books called the Greek Bible, and he began to read. Bilney had struggled his entire life to be good enough. As a good Catholic, he went to mass, to confession. He did penance. He, he, he repeated the right prayers, desperately trying to secure his merit before God, to be good enough with no confidence whatsoever, hoping to be able to attain heaven. One day, Bilney opened this restricted 
book and read through, and his eyes came to 1 Timothy 1.15. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Vilni was broken, amazed. Jesus came to save sinners? He wrote in his journal, immediately I seemed unto myself inwardly to feel a marvelous comfort and quietness insomuch as my bruised bones leapt for joy. Christ Jesus came into this world not to save the good and moral people, not to collect those whose lives are all together and neat and tidy to bring them to heaven. No, he came for the sinners, the outcasts, the filthy. As John Newton put it, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Jesus said it himself. He was being criticized for spending time with the the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners of his day. Matthew, uh, sorry, Mark 2.17 says, and when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Do you feel the weight of that? Do you feel yourself to be a sinner today? You see moral failure, brokenness in your life, uncleanliness. And if you do, good news. Good news. You're just the kind of person that Jesus came to save. He came from these humble beginnings because he came to rescue the humble. But the angel then begins to point forward that Jesus came to this humble beginning But that would not be the end. There would be a glorious end. Jesus would not stay in that lowly place. He goes on uh, in verses 32 to 33. Listen to these words. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. That's where this is going. This is going somewhere great because this Jesus will be great. And if you look at this passage, you'll see there's four ands. Those four ands each start another supporting statement. So Jesus will be great and this is what it will look like. The first and, he will be called the son of the most high. It's kind of surprised me. I was talking with some guys the other day um, We're saying they find a lot of people confused on this, that Jesus isn't God. He's the son of God. That's not how this works. Those are not different things. You have to understand, as it talks about the son of the most high, um, you have to understand what we call the Trinity. There is one God, and he exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Each are God, each are fully God, and each are still individual persons, and yet they are all one God. If you're not confused yet, you haven't thought about it. Um, That's beyond what our minds can comprehend, and we should expect the almighty creator of the universe to be a little bit greater, a little more vast than we can wrap our puny minds around. But that's what scripture is referring to when it talks about Jesus as the son of God. 
That he is God himself. That's why Jesus himself can say, John 10.30, I and the Father are one. There's me and there's him and we're one. So Gabriel is saying this child will be God himself. He starts right at the mountaintop. He's going to be great. How great? He will be God. And then comes another and. And here he, he begins to, to draw for some, from some prophecies that have been building through the Old Testament. And Jesus would be the king. He would sit on the throne of his father David. This was a long-standing series of promises that God would bring about this perfect kingdom. And the, the king who ruled it would himself be perfect, ruling with justice and, and righteousness. And that every subject of that kingdom would have perfect peace and joy and fulfillment and rest. So he would be this king on the throne of David, this king with a perfect kingdom. And the next and, uh, he would be the ruler over the family of Jacob. Another long line of building promises coming to this climax here. God had told Jacob that he would start a family. And that this family would be marked by the blessing of God. That people from every tribe and nation and tongue would be, would be gathered together, would be brought into this family. And now we see this family that would be God's cherished people, his beloved people marked by his blessing, uh, would be ruled by Jesus. He's the head of this family, firstborn over it. So he's the kingdom, a king over a, a kingdom of perfect peace, and he's the, the ruler over a family where there's belonging, love, acceptance. Then, finally, in reference to both of these, I think, Gabriel says, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This, I think, confirms our suspicions. He's talking about heaven. He's talking about Eternity of, of perfect, blissful existence in this kingdom, in this family, in a world with, with no death, no sin, no suffering. A world of peace. And it would be for those under the kingly rule of Jesus, for those who are part of this blessed family. It's a glorious end, a glorious end, not just for Jesus, but for all who would come to him. God himself ruling over a kingdom of peace and a family of belonging lasting for eternity. And he offers it to the sinful, the outcast, to those who rightly deserve the wrath of God. He came to offer this glorious eternity. He came to offer redemption, salvation, hope, for the absolutely undeserving, actually worse than undeserving, those who deserve the opposite, right? I mean, then this, this really begs the question, there's a, there's, a, there's a logical problem here. We've said that God is perfect and righteous and just. How can this be accomplished? How can a just and righteous God, who always does what is right, he's the, he's the perfect judge. So he always gives the right sentence the, the appropriate verdict in the right sentence. So how can he be righteous and just and let sinners go free? A lot of people feel animosity toward God for his righteousness, his justice, his holiness. How dare he? 
We hate the talk of hell. What a terrible thing. And the basic sentiment is, why can't God just let it go? Right? Just sweep it under the rug. No one should have to go to hell. I mean, sure, maybe murderers and pedophiles and the worst of the worst, but not us normal people. That just seems out of place. The truth is, let me apologize in advance for this. It doesn't actually matter what you think. God's not asking your opinion. He's the creator of the world. He is the almighty God. His judgment is the only judgment that matters. The reality is he is perfect, impeccable, immaculate, in pristine, in the, the blinding intensity of his holiness. We don't get to tell him what's fair. Now, you might look around at your neighbors and your coworkers and think, it's okay, I'm doing all right. Maybe we watch the news and we see some of the wackos on there and I'm doing pretty good. Actually, I think I'm an above average kind of good person. I, I think I'm making it. We judge by that standard. Um, we see ourselves as doing all right. When we hold ourselves to his perfect spotlessness, we begin to see how far short we fall. It'd be as if we lined up on the, the coast of Vancouver Island to have a, a swimming competition. Who can, who can get to Japan? Now, I'm a decent swimmer. I'm just going to get arrogant for a moment. I used to lifeguard. I think I'd be out on the, I think I'd get out there a long ways. Uh, I think I could do, I don't know, a handful of miles. I, I'd beat a lot of people here by a long ways. And so we were just look at how far each of us got. You'd see a large gap between some of us. But if you were to zoom out and see it on the scale of Vancouver Island to Japan, we're all on the starting line. And that actually is the wrong analogy because we didn't begin to swim. We got up and started walking inland. We went the wrong way. We've dug ourselves further into this grave. We see the seriousness of the fact that that our sin isn't just against one another. We don't get to compare against each other, but our sin is actually a direct assault, a, a pointed defiance against the perfect holiness of God. And our real question should not be how dare God judge us, but how on earth has he not destroyed us? How could a holy God pardon a sinner like me? Allow the wicked to go unpunished without himself being wicked, evil. All of a sudden, this fact that he came as humble for the humble grows a little bit sweeter. We think a little more deeply. It ought to leave us trembling with this fearful anticipation. How does Christmas answer that desperate question? And that does get right to the heart of Christmas, the miracle of the virgin birth. From that humble beginning to a glorious end and, and in the middle is this miraculous means. This miraculous means. Look at verses 34 and 35. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, you might not see it at first, but, but the reality of this miracle is the answer to our great question. Mary, though she was a virgin, literally she says, I have not known a man, and she's using known in a very particular way there. 
would yet conceive and bear a son. And in that miracle, God was saying, I'll do it. I will accomplish it. I will do what you cannot. We talked last Sunday, the the virgin birth is not kind of this standalone miracle all by itself. It's not just a kind of a once-off. It's once again the last in a long line of miracles. These miraculous births that God had been doing. Um, Abraham and Sarah, barren, into their old age, unable to have children. God comes and miraculously, they have Isaac, the first in this family of promise. Isaac's wife, Rebecca, was barren until God intervened and they had Jacob, the, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. His name changed to Israel, but before that, Jacob and his wife, Rachel, was barren. Miraculously, God intervenes and they have Joseph. Joseph, who would be sold into slavery, imprisoned, eventually rise to the highest position in all of Egypt and rescue the family of God from starvation. The same is true of Manoah and his wife who had Samson who freed Israel from the Philistines in his sacrificial death as he pushed over the pillars of the temple and brought it crashing down. Hannah who bore the prophet Samuel through whom God spoke to the people of Israel who led the people to follow the Lord. The Shunammite woman who we know very little about but that she was hospitable to Elisha was given a son, that son died, and by God's hand through Elisha was raised from the dead. And of course, John the Baptist, born to Elizabeth in her old age, who who paved the way for Jesus. All of these miraculously born men used by God to, to build and to rescue the people of God. He's making a point. And a point that he clearly punctuates with an exclamation mark in the most miraculous of all the miraculous births, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ himself. And the point is this, it's God who saves. You don't bring these saviors about. You don't do this. You didn't plan this. This wasn't your thing. I do this. I'm the God who rescues. It doesn't depend on you. He's not calling us to to pick ourselves up by the bootstraps. He doesn't demand that we meet him halfway. He doesn't depend on us to to make amends or to clean ourselves up and then come to him. Quite the opposite. His salvation is by grace through faith. Grace means an undeserved gift. He does it. He saves. And we simply trust. Trust him to do what, what we could never do. As he said to Israel through Moses, as they're standing on the banks of the Red Sea, the the army of the Egyptians closing in on them, their certain death. Exodus 14, Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Of course, the Lord then opened up the Red Sea and the people of Israel walked through and then he brought it crashing down and obliterated the armies of Egypt. Are you willing to let the Lord fight for you? Are you willing to simply trust him and be silent? And what would he do? How can he actually solve this problem? We still have our our logical conundrum of a just God letting sinners go free 
And the virgin birth answers that as well. The virgin birth introduces us to a child, a human child, out of the womb of Mary, but a human, human child who is also, verse 35, holy, the son of God. He's human. He's one of us. And in that, he can, he can represent us. He's also the son of God. As the son of God, he can represent us before God in a, in a courtroom that we can't enter. A room that, that we could never, a place we could never stand. And being holy, he has no sin of his own. He has no death penalty hanging over his head like each one of us do. And so in representing us before the Father, as we are found inevitably guilty, that was never a question. We are worthy of the wrath of God in hell, but our representative, our perfect lawyer, is able to represent us to the end. Not only taking our case, but taking then our penalty on himself. Dying on the cross he took the wrath of God that we deserved on himself. The penalty is paid. Justice is done. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he, that's God. For our sake, he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's this great exchange, our sin for his righteousness, our death for his life. That's the miracle of the virgin birth playing out. This is how the wicked and the guilty are made holy, are forgiven, and God is still righteous, still just. This is what Christmas is all about. And remember, Jesus isn't just some third party sent to rescue us from the mean God stepping in between. No, he is God, carrying out the plan of God that he had designed and orchestrated from the very beginning. A plan to rescue for himself the most wretched of sinners who will come in humility, admitting their sin and their need for a savior. That is what Isaiah was prophesying, Isaiah 9, 2 the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelled in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. John said in John 1, 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus himself said, John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's why we celebrate Christmas with lights. That's why the traditional Christmas Eve service ends with candlelight. Because the light has come. The light of the world, our life. Because at Christmas we remember that though we are darkness and are in darkness, Jesus, the light of the world, has come. And in his light, we have life. We're going to close in song together. I'll invite the choir to come back up. Um, would you pull out those uh, tea lights that you were given? Turn those on. Um, Dean, do you want to flip the lights off?
Let's stand together as we sing.
Father, we come before you this Christmas Eve in awe and wonder that a holy God, a righteous and just God, did not treat us as our sins deserved, but while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What a miracle beyond fathom. What grace. What a gift came at Christmas and culminated on the cross. Father, I pray that every heart here this evening would be humbled before you. Lord, that we would not for one instant dare to stand in the light of your holiness to challenge you to fight for our own righteousness, but simply to admit our guilt and our failure and our absolute hopelessness and rejoice that Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Lord, that we might look forward to that glorious end, to that day when we will be with you, when Jesus returns and we will enter fully and completely into that perfect kingdom of rest, that family of belonging, into hope and joy and peace eternal. All because of Christ, all because you have done what we could not do. So God, we worship you. May your name be lifted high this Christmas as we gather as families and friends to, um, to feast together, to give gifts, to celebrate and to sing, God, that, that you would be the center of all of it because you are worthy. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you so much for coming this evening, celebrating together. What a, uh, what a precious time. Um, hope you uh, are able to enjoy uh, the rest of your Christmas together. Know this, Redemption Church, you are loved. Have a Merry Christmas.